Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. It's not the new me at all. This is the old me that was always inside. I actually nearly died. I thought, how kind of the stranger to actually do something like this. There's 19 shops empty on Oliver Funk Street alone, Peter, and it'll be number 20. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Punch 96. Morning to you. It's like something out of an episode of CSI, but I will be talking this morning with the man who has the gadget that he believes could crack the case of who killed Sophie Toscan Duplantier. It's an incredible device. It's called an MVAC, and I'll be talking to uh, the man who says it might solve the case a little bit later on this morning. That and uh, plenty more. We've another chance for you to qualify for our wonderful giveaway with the Furniture Centre in Blackpool. That's also coming during the course of the morning and plenty more besides that meeting uh, to talk about Cork's Dirty Water, uh, where Ishka Aaron or Irish Water or whatever they're choosing to call themselves this week, they're not going. So the meeting is all about the water, but they ain't going. But that's coming later. Morning to you. 0818969696. The number, the text to WhatsApp is 083-396-9696. And the email opinion at 96fm.ie. And yeah, once again, we're starting with the situation in our hospitals. But this morning I listened to the words of Professor Connor DC. He is a consultant at CUH. He's also the president of the Irish Association for Emergency Medicine. He's been speaking this morning about some very, very scary, and that's the word I'd use, scary statistics. They have 35 what they call clinical spaces. That's where they can treat people. 35 clinical spaces at the emergency department in CUH. And since last evening, in or around 120 people have turned up looking to be seen, looking to be treated, obviously, various levels of sickness, various levels of of urgency, uh, so to speak. There's 117 people waiting there. 45 are on trolleys. And he said last night, while he was working his own shift, Professor DC said he'd met patients who had actually held off going to the hospital for several days 
because they'd been hearing about how busy the emergency departments were. And of course, if you're sick, you might get sicker by not going to see somebody. Uh, it's a grim situation. A friend of the show, Irish a Medical Times columnist and retired consultant in emergency medicine at both the CUH and the Mercy. Uh, Dr. Chris Luke, you know the situation on the ground there, Chris, as well as, if not better than most, very bleak words this morning from your, your former colleague and friend, uh, Connor DC. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Now, unfortunately, uh, I, I didn't manage to hear what Connor said, but uh, I can only imagine that they were uh, the words of someone who is facing what sounds like the most difficult scenario in the history of CUH. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was, I saw the article on the Echo Live, the Cork Echo Live, uh, which said that there were 300 patients attended the emergency department CUH on Tuesday, uh, which is a record. And it's an absolutely staggering number of people. Uh, if you think that the department is probably better suited to the likes of 100, 150 patients uh, per, per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a really staggering figure. And I gather that there were, uh, I'm not sure whether it was last night's figures, but roughly 88 people on trolleys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a few of them on, on corridors in, in the hospital wards, but, but most of them sadly on, on the corridors and the nukes and crannies of the emergency department itself. So yes, a, a particularly grim situation. He was explaining this morning, 35 clinical spaces and over 100 people waiting to be seen. That's, that's not tenable. That's, that's just not tenable. No, no. And uh, unfortunately, I, I'm all too familiar with the sense of being absolutely overwhelmed. And I was, uh, I suppose, on behalf of the, the, the exhausted staff, I was, I was very glad uh, and grateful to see that the chief executive, David Donegan, had expressed his admiration and thanks to the staff. And he, most importantly, he said he realised that they were working under extraordinary duress and, they, and they, you know, they, these were exhausting uh, and really, you know, extraordinarily difficult situations. Um, so, I, I mean, I, my, my, my heart goes out to the staff. It obviously also goes out to, to all the patients who have to wait in these, uh, in, in these conditions. But I suppose it, it, uh, it prompts us to, to discuss, uh, you know, uh, initial or, you know, quick fixes uh, as well as the long-term solutions. Mm. Something else that Professor DC said this morning was he'd actually spoken to people during his shift that had held off going to the hospital and now they were sicker again. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, PJ, you and I have discussed this over the the, the last number of years. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a basically a fact that's more or less accepted now uh, as, as, you know, reinforced by, by data, by figures, facts, studies that delay in diagnosis Delay in treatment results in worse outcomes, uh, and you know that, that that's just a reality that we have to accept. If we're faced with uh, congested, overcrowded, uh, inundated emergency departments as we are around the country, uh, you know we have to accept that in parallel there will be you know uh, worse outcomes for for those for those involved. In the mercy as well, of recent weeks, you know the makeshift beds in the aisles of the wards. Chris, we're a thriving comp- country. We've a thriving, we're a thriving economy. We're almost full employment. We've a, we're a very strong nation. How are we in this kind of a mess? Um, 
One has to, I mean, to to put it bluntly, there's been a a woeful failure of planning. Uh, And, you know, one of the things I always notice about people when they're having conversations about public health issues, whatever it is, violence, heart attacks, strokes, the elderly, they're always looking at fixed pictures. You know, they look at they're looking at photographs as opposed to videos. And, you know, you and I know that the population of Ireland has changed radically, has grown radically. Uh, over the last 20 to 30 years. And about 30 years ago, uh, a couple of ministers uh, of health in quick succession slashed the bed stock in the country by something like a third or uh, roughly 30%. We've never got those 30% uh, of beds back. And in the meantime, the country popula- country's population has grown you know, staggeringly. We've recently exceeded 5 million for the first time since the famine. Um, so, you know, when I was a boy, when, you know, when you and I were boys, um, the population of this country was something uh, of the, in the early 60s was something of the order of two to three million, if I'm not mistaken. Now it's 5.1 million. So that, that's the kind of, you know, moving video I'm talking about, that um, they keep planning for what seems to be fixed points uh, on, a, on, a, on a graph when, you know, the, the situation is constantly evolving, sometimes more rapidly uh, than others, and often far more rapidly than, than the plans have been made for. So the bottom line is, we are way, way uh, behind in terms of the number of beds per head of population mm-hmm. compared with our, 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 the average country in the, for example, the OECD or the EU. And at the moment as well, there's a recruitment ban, which means that people who have left or retired or whatever can't be replaced. That does not help. No, and it's also really very, very bad for morale when you when you realise that you know a, a dear a friend, comrade, uh, colleague is leaving, uh, and they and they're saying, and, and is there anybody to replace? And you say, no, there isn't, and you already know that you've both been you know put to the pin of your collar for, for months, if not years, uh, and and you had that colleague who's now departing, but not not to be replaced. And the idea that people will get sick or have crises. Uh, that they, you know, that they may or may not be able to leave the department, but they will feel guilty because that's the nature of healthcare staff, particularly in the trenches. They tend to be the the, the, the good Samaritans among us, uh, and they tend to be very, you know, driven by the by, by, by a moral impetus to, to care. So they 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 quit their posts, or they they they, they even quit for a day, uh, feeling extremely guilty. When I take, uh, go on, sorry, sorry, no, no, sorry, PJ, sorry. When I take calls from other parts of Europe, from, you know, Cork people who are living in Spain and France and places like that, Spain in particular, the speed at which you can see a doctor is extraordinary. You can be scanned there and then if, if, you, if, you, if you go to the department. There don't seem to be queues. France, the same, don't seem to be queues. Even the NHS, which is always creaking, seems to work faster than the HSE. What is happening in other countries to make it work that doesn't happen here. Well, I, I uh, you know, I spent 14 years in the NHS, PJ, so I can uh, sadly assure you that the NHS is struggling in much the same yeah. way as we are. Oh, yeah, they, were, yeah. they, had, they, had, they had to bring the army in in the last 18 months to uh, to deal with uh, situations where there were 12 or 18 emer- uh, ambulances outside huge emergency departments, massively overcrowded. And, you know, I, I've said to you before, we think we're losing hundreds of people a year uh, because of the delays, but they're losing thousands in the, in the UK. So <clears throat> the UK and the Irish health systems are, are sadly very comparable in terms of planning and, and evolution. They both have almost identical problems. It, uh, in Europe, they have very different insurance arrangements. So there are far more, for example, private hospitals, private specialists, cl- you know, clustering. Uh, if you know the way, if you walk in a, any large 
uh, French city, you'll often see, you know, specialist names on, on brass, uh, brass plaques in houses, residential houses, you know, in the vicinity of hospitals. So there's lots, huge amounts of private practice. They also pay far more tax. And this, of course, is, is the fundamental issue. Uh, you know, it, we're, we're, in many respects, we're looking for sort of French uh, standards of care, but we want to pay American uh, levels of tax. And, and that's the ultimate mismatch. We, we, we don't uh, ultimately pay uh, uh, enough money into the, the health copper. And that's because of the rapid evolution of the population, the rapid ageing of the population, uh, changes in the, de- in the, in the demographic and, and so on, and changes in the population statistics in and around you know, small and large towns mm. and cities in this country. So th- th- that's an, a, a bleak fact. But, but inevitably, there's also uh, a fairly uh, wocious difficulty in terms of anticipating all of this. Yeah. Is there any way that we, as ordinary citizens can help the situation as we speak? Huge. There are huge things we can do. And, you know, if it's any consolation, uh, PJ, I was listening to a piece in London earlier today and the, the former head of the British Army was saying to the people of Britain they need to prepare for war. Uh, a similar uh, uh, assertion was made by a Dutch admiral last week and by a German rear admiral this week. So, you know... I need, we need to, I suppose, uh, realise that, you know, things are changed. I mean, for example, I worry about a recession. You know, I mean, all the kind of, uh, there seem to be a lot of red flags in terms of a recession in, in, in this economy. Uh, and God knows what may happen to our economy, uh, given that, you know, 10 American multinationals currently based in this island pay about 50% of our GDP. So, you know, we're, we're quite exposed in this island, not just meteorologically, but, you know, but in economically and, and, and politically. And, and I think we need to also recognise that going forward, healthcare is going to be challenging for absolutely everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a billionaire or a pauper. If you end up in a massively overcrowded emergency department, you may well have to wait for hours or, or, or even days. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think people need to really, really proactively uh, mind themselves. For example, they need to make sure that they've got a regular secure supply of the, of the medications that they use for their blood pressure, for their diabetes, for their, for, for, for even for pain and, tum- and tummy problems. They need to consult the pharmacist on a regular basis. Make sure you're friendly with your local pharmacist. They are extraordinarily valuable uh, resources uh, in terms of information and guidance uh, uh, and so forth. And an awful lot of rem- uh, ailments are self-limiting and would have been managed by our, our own grandmothers. So we need to co- kind of go, in a sense, go back to that ethos where, you know, like grandmothers, we, we'd, we'd always uh, tend to think of what can we do here before we reach for the doctor. Uh, I think everybody really should have a once a year checkup with their dentist or their, their, their GP. And, I, and the reason I say that is, for example, one of the, the leading drivers of hospitalization for children, for example, is dental caries. Really? Uh, and uh, it turned, I, I read a paper there last week which said that uh, people who have had one consultation with their GP tend to do much better if there's an emergency, than those who, who haven't had a recent consultation. In other words, you're you're trying to constantly tweak uh, the, the the background, yeah. uh, you know, medical wellness. If you do have because a crisis, so that you're as well as possible. You have the additional problem in community at the moment, Chris, where people can't get to see a GP. Yes, the no, GP's I'm books are full. I'm absolutely conscious of that, I and mean, we've we've discussed that before. The, the shrinking availability of, of general practitioners, the shrinking number. Uh, of, of GPs who are, who are because of, of retirement uh, and, and so forth. So I, again, I'm very conscious of that. But you know, there are things like the urgent care centre uh, in Guanabara, which does wonderful work. 
there, there are sometimes you can take a, a sports injury to a physiotherapist first rather than particularly if you've had it for a couple of weeks uh, rather than heading to an emergency department which does happen you know PJ still uh, you know we, 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 we do uh, in emergency departments still uh, have to provide a, a, an awful lot of services that should ideally be done in, in other places such as pharmacies such as GP surgeries such as outpatient clinics and so on mm. so uh, but, but the most important thing I, I suppose uh, BJ, to your, for your listeners, for everybody, is to try and think ahead. How can I, you know, avoid a trip to the hospital if at all possible? You know, by you know, what what, what are the what are the things I can do to, to mind myself or my or my loved ones so that you know we we, we don't end up going to hospital mm-hmm. if at all possible. You know, so I know, I know that sounds a little bit pious, but I, I you know I genuinely think that that healthcare is is so challenging now nationally. Uh, on both sides of the IRC that people are, you know, really need to think proactively and think ahead. I remember a time when you said that A&E, now known as ED, but A&E, instead of standing for accident and emergency, in your experience, was standing almost for anything and everything. That's still there. Correct. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I mean... uh, I, I was giving a talk last night to, to, to medical students and, and, and talking about, you know, one of the major drivers of overcrowding is that we do uh, find people who are waiting for years, literally on waiting lists, to despair and pitch up in the emergency department. We have all, we have like possibly half a dozen people who are homeless every day coming to the emergency departments in, in, in the city. We have people with addiction problems that cannot get treatment. Uh, we have people who are tourists the city. We have people who are shoppers. We have students late at night. You know, there are huge numbers of people who are coming uh, to their emergency departments because they're, they're, because of, of the limited number uh, of, of, of alternatives. So, you know, we need to be constantly thinking about, you know, the, the overcrowding, this is my mantra, the overcrowding in our emergency departments is there because the emergency department is now the only portal of access to the health service yeah. for so many people. And it shouldn't be and it can't be. And there have to be other um, gateways into into healthcare. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, you and I spoke about what's happening down at Afadia. Within days of us having that conversation, there there was a seventy five euro fee uh, put up on it by the HSE um, because there were apparently queues to get in there. Like it just shows how much extra capacity, extra extra places to go are needed. Yeah. And the cliche, PJ, that I offered you at the time was build it and they will come. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, we, we live in a, I think, in a fairly Americanized society now. And, and I think that part of the part of what's going to be seen in the landscape now of healthcare of the, of the next five, ten years, and perhaps necessarily so, is, is, is far more places like Aphidia. Uh, and the VHI out in Mahan uh, and so on and so forth. So in other words, we need to have a proliferation of various models of care. We need more in, in, in local injury units because they're wonderful. We just need more of them. Uh, we need more rapid uh, access for general practitioners to, to imaging and scanning uh, because of people on waiting lists. Because, you know, for example, once upon a time when I worked at the Mercy and there was always waiting lists for orthopedic uh, care, I used to suggest to people who haven't insurance, well, would you have the 150 euros to get an MRI scan? Uh, because if they had the 150 euros for the MRI scan, that could catapult them up in terms of the system. Now, that was what I called a third way. You know, I mean, people were people were in great distress. There was a public waiting list of, of 18 months. But if they had an MRI scan, which confirmed 
that they had a, a, a cruciate tear or they'd ruptured the rotator cuff on the shoulder. That meant that by definition there was proof that they needed urgent uh, specialist intervention and, and then they got it. So again, we need to be imaginative. We need to be inventive. We need to constantly think of ways around, you know, workarounds and, and, and uh, ways around of filling gaps and, and, and so on. But, you know, we are very solution-driven in emergency medicine. Uh, and I can assure you that they're constantly uh, inventing ways of, of, of fixing the problems. But there, there is a, uh, at the moment, where, from what I can gather, they're, they're completely overwhelmed. So, yeah. you know, we need to multiply the number of alternatives. I imagine that they must feel, your colleagues uh, must feel, abandoned by the leadership of the country? Uh, well, uh, so speaking as someone who worked for 37 years in the trenches, uh, I mean, there were countless occasions when I felt absolute despair and absolute rage uh, and purple mist would descend. And it was only because I needed to conceal that from the patient in front of me that I didn't rant even more. I mean, I know that sounds difficult to believe, PJ, but I would have ranted even more if I wasn't so busy, you know, uh, shoveling in, 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 the, in the trenches. But yes, uh, many staff do feel utterly abandoned. And that's why it's so important to recognise that one of the most important qualities and, uh, you know, uh, requirements of leadership is to, is to pitch up in the trenches. So it's absolutely vital that people like chief, chief executives and directors of nursing uh, and so on are, are in the department on a daily basis, in, 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 whether it be CUH or Tala or Limerick. You know, if the situation is so bad that you're always on the front pages, then you, know, you need to see the most senior um, uh, ma- managers and, and leaders in those departments because it should be all hands on deck. And as many people from the rest of the hospital should be down trying to uh, lend a hand with sleeves rolled up and get stuck in. Uh, there are people doing their bit on the wards to uh, discharge patients and then uh, people coming down to the department to try and lend a hand in terms of, of identifying things that can be preempted or, or deterioration that can be avoided and anticipated and so on and so on. Yeah. Lastly, you've talked about the nursing home sector too. That, that's in trouble and that adds to the problem. Yes, um, I delved into that whole nursing home thing because my, my beloved mother and my, my equally beloved mother-in-law both spend the last uh, weeks of their lives in nursing homes in the last couple of years, last few years anyway. And so I had first-hand experience of the nursing home sector and then I was asked to give a keynote address at the Nursing Home Ireland uh, annual conference in Kilkenny a, a few months ago. And I was dismayed to learn that there is a massive hemorrhage of staff and a massive rate of closure of particularly local and community nursing homes, you know, small private uh, nursing homes uh, all around the country. You know, dozens are closing uh, each year over the last two or three years. And again, because people like you and me and many others are talking about, oh, we need to discharge uh, people who are medically fit with discharge to nursing homes and community hospitals. And then to learn that the community hospital, or certainly the nursing home sector, is, is like general practice and that it's, it's not quite imploding, but it's rapidly shrinking uh, for want of resources and, and strategic planning and so on, is also deeply worrying. So that's a, uh, the nursing home sector is somewhere where we need really, really urgent action. And, and um, I, I say it again, and I say it again, uh, they need to start by paying nursing home staff 
better wages. They need to treat them like the professionals that they are. If you and I are, 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 are you know, putting the people that we love most dearly in the world into the care of nursing homes, we want the people involved to be the best possible professions that they can be. And people, professionals uh, who sacrifice so much and put patients ahead of themselves, uh, they need to be rewarded. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of even just the average uh, wage of pay, not, not treated, uh, you know, uh, as an afterthought and paid the minimum wage. The minimum wage is not good enough for people who are so professional mm-hmm. and who are so dedicated and who sacrifice so much for the people who we, who we love so dearly. All right. Chris, leave it there. As always, a pleasure to have your insights on the opinion line. Dr. Chris Luke, retired consultant in emergency medicine, uh, currently writes for the Irish Medical Times. He's also behind the Irish Medical Lives podcast. And his book, which I recommend at any opportunity I can get, is called A Life in Trauma. Uh, you get that in any good bookshop. If that's not an insight into how our system works or doesn't work, then there's no other book has achieved it. It's wonderful. Well worth picking up Chris's book and having a read of it. 0818 96 96 96. C-O-H, a mess this morning. Three times oversubscribed. Three times oversubscribed. Three times as many people in the C-O-H this morning as it can handle. And what's going to happen is, you know, that in the next couple of months they're going to start... A canog on the Doris for the elections, the local elections, the European elections, and sometime between now and next year, this time next year, they'll be knocking on the door for a general election. And they'll be telling you, yes, I'm looking at you, and you and you, you'll be telling us you can fix it all in a couple of years. You can't, unless you listen to someone like Chris Luke, unless you listen to people like Conor DC, unless you listen to those kind of people and actually sit them down and say, what do we need to do and how much money do you need to do it? Otherwise, you're talking out, out through your hat. 0818 96 96 96. Check this out. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96 FM. Let's have some fun. Every day from 12, I am your soundtrack in Cork. Good afternoon, Simon. How are you? There's nostalgia. I just remember that film being the only film that everyone wanted to go see. I'm dishing out unreal prizes. Do you have a passport, Debbie? I do. Is it in date, Debbie? It is. Do you want to go to Bordeaux, Debbie? <gasps> Are you serious? And there's tunes from these guys. What's up, everybody? This is Ariana Grande. Hello, I'm Luz Capaldi. This is Dear Lipa. Talk to you from midday. Simon Murdoch. Midday to 4 p.m. With First South Credit Union. For your needs are put before profits. First South Credit Union. Members come first. Is this, is this how we do it? Corks 96 FM. Bill, you're very kind. Bill says, just listening there, I want to say something about the conversation between Dr. Chris, Luke and PJ. It's very rare you hear down-to-earth conversations that strike like a sledgehammer without fear of favour stating the facts. Well done. Well, that's one of the reasons we have Chris on so often, Bill, is because he calls it like he sees it, uh, without fear of favour. Uh, and thank you very much for that kind comment. Kate, you were listening to Chris as well. Good morning. Hi. Um, I just want to say they've advertised a lot of posts recently. That's right. And they said the other day in the doll they don't have the money to pay them. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. They haven't the money. They haven't the money to actually pay them for the posts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're advertising the posts, and they have the jobs, but uh, they they haven't the amount of money to pay the new people. 
There are loads of vacancies. And if someone leaves now today, if someone hands in their notice, they won't be replaced. No, and but I mean they're advertising posts as well, and then they say they haven't the amount of money to pay all these people. Um, Kevin had an accident once, and initially, and he was taken into a hospital. There was three people in the room: the person who was going to stitch him up, the triage nurse, and um, somebody taking his details. You know, all the the written work. That was all done in one room. Yeah. But then he was brought down to be um, sewn up. And then, this is the best part, when he was, when eventually got out of the hospital, he was brought back to the hotel, and about 10 o'clock he got a phone call, it was from the doctor, to find out how he was feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He nearly fell over, he couldn't believe it. Mm. Because? It was just the, incredible it, care, and his e, system is organised, like. But his card, paid, you know, his e, 111 card, covered it. Yeah. That's important to carry that, yeah. That's very, very important. But I just think, I feel so sorry for the nurses and all the staff, be down to the cleaning. Everybody in the hospitals, they're all completely exhausted, you know? And I just want to say, Chris Luke is unreal, and he does say it as it is. It's so bad. You know, I read his book, and it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible understanding. We spent forty years in the system, incredible yeah. understanding of of the of what's wrong in there, and and what frustrates people like me who know him is just let him at it, just let him roll up his sleeves and let him at it, and people like Chris and his colleagues will fix it if they're let, but they don't get let. They don't, and they, some people don't like him talking up either. But you know the Ophidia Clinic. I went there for a scan once. But what you do then is you can take your scan to the South Infirmary or wherever you have to go back to, and then they ring. They have to ring Ophidia to get permission to use the scan. Yeah. To look at it. There so you you're sitting there and you have to get permission to phone them. Yeah. There was a time as well when, um, if you got a scan done in a place like Ophidia and you went to a hospital subsequently, they did another one. Right. Just to be sure. Okay. I think, that's, sure, I think yeah. that's changed. I think that's changed. I think it has, yeah. yeah. All right, Kate, Hello. thanks. thanks Take for, care. Bye-bye. Thanks for that. Yeah, the Affidea situation, when we last spoke to Chris, they had opened the doors as a free walk-in. That changed within, I think, two days of that conversation. Uh, starting on the 15th of January, they started charging people €75 Euro to visit Affidea in line with regular fees. Now, if you had a medical card, you were exempt. If you were referred there by your GP or other department, you were exempt. And if you subsequently got admitted to hospital, you were exempt of that fee. But they started imposing. That arrangement with Affidea at the Elysian is coming to an end next week. We don't know what's going to happen. But it was free. And then, as Chris said, if you build it, they will come. They came. So many of them came. And they had to impose a fee then. So it's the same rules as when you go to the emergency department. 0818 96 96 96. There is a meeting tonight to discuss our dirty, filthy, manky water. Uh, To discuss ongoing water quality issues in Cork City. Uh, The issue of dirty water was raised in the Dáil last week. There have been thousands of complaints. We've filled hours of radio here on the opinion line. Ishka Aaron. Uh, have been invited to attend the meeting, but it's understood that they will not be represented tonight. The meeting is at the Maldon Hotel in Shandon at half past seven. Sonia Cashman, good morning. Hi, PJ. Thanks a million for the call. Delighted Um, to have you on because you're one of the people who's been complaining now for months about the state of of the water. You're, You're up there in Spring Lane. 
Yeah, I think I'm one of Manny PJ, to be fair. I mean, it's gone beyond a joke. You know, there is a cost of living crisis out there. We're buying extra bottles of water. We're buying water filters. We're throwing out washing. You're standing in a shower and you look down and there's rust water running down. It's just gone beyond the joke. I mean, I really wanted the meeting tonight um, to just be a chance to ask some questions in a civilised manner, just to see, look, what's going on? Why is this happening? You know, but they're not coming on, so I, I don't understand. Mm. I have a statement to hand from them, which I will read the gist of in a minute. What's your own situation? You've even had to throw appliances out, I think, have you? Well, you see, I suppose when you were pouring bottles of water into your kettle, it just blows the element. Yeah. Um, I'm not the only one. I know loads of people have to throw loads, numerous kettles, numerous, numerous loads of washing, um, buying more shirts for schools and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's, it, somebody has to be culpable for this feature, you know? I mean, the meeting tonight was supposed to be a chance for us to get answers. Yeah. And know that they're not coming to the table. They obviously have no answers for us. Yeah. Well, they've, they've issued a statement. They sent it into Morid at the newsroom in the last while. Uh, and the gist of it, and this is coming from uh, Ishke Aaron, Irish Water, whatever you choose. Ishke Aaron is the new official name. They say they fully understand and acknowledge that the water services in Cork City are not meeting the standards that customers rightly expect especially in the light of significant investment over the last number of years. Please be assured, they say, that Ishka Aaron is treating this matter with the utmost priority and are committed to working on the ground to address the issue. We can confirm they received an invitation. A representative will not be available to attend, but we continue to engage extensively with elected representatives. They then go through a list of the things that they have attended and they inform us that the... Uh, Ishka Aaron Customer Care Helpline is open around the clock at 1-800-278-278. You can get them on X, formerly known as Twitter, at IWCare, or there's an inquiry form available on water.ie. But the gist of the statement is we received an invitation to tonight's meeting and we won't be there. What do you take it? What do you make of that? It's not good enough. It's absolutely not good enough. For the people who are suffering from 18 months plus, other places it's going on longer, PJ. You know, if they're not going to attend a meeting tonight, then we're going to have to go out and walk the streets. We're yeah. going to have to protest because I don't think anyone in their right mind would accept this. This is 2024. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely disgusting what comes out of our taps. Yeah. Every conversation we have with each other, with your neighbour, with your friend, with your sister, with your cousin, nothing's about the weather anymore, PJ. It's all about the water. Yeah. Can you, did you put on a wash? I was here Saturday and I could do nothing. All day Saturday. No washing, no dishwasher, nothing. Mm-hmm. I spoke to a woman from Lotomore the other morning who put in a load of sheets and pillowcases and they were destroyed. Oh, they came out God. brown. And, you know, like, to be fair, there's no amount of vanish in the world is getting rid of those things. <laughs> They're gone in the bin. They're, gone They're in the bin. And on the topic of bins, PJ, I mean, I have a bin outside. Recycling. Yeah. Right, it's full. It's full to the brim. The majority of it is bottles of water. Yeah. 
you know, if they're going to take money out of my pocket, I want to know why. It's very simple. Come to the meeting. It's a civilised meeting. Answer our questions. I've said a thousand times, I want my water tested at my source, not your source. Mm. I want someone to come out and test my water and tell me that it's okay. That's all I want. But they're not coming out and they're not saying anything and they're too quiet for my liking. If you you fill out, say, a a glass, a clear glass of water and leave it on the table, what does it look like? Brown? Off-coloured? What happens after? It looks like tea with no milk. But even if it runs clear, PJ, and you put it into the top of your filter, there's still sediments in it. There's still something floating there. No, I had every face in Irish water to come to that meeting tonight and to say to us, look, lads, this is what we're doing. Mm. Look, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Have a conversation. That's all we wanted. But no, I have no faith in them. I don't want their company coming out and testing my water at source. I want another company coming out and testing my water at source. Yeah. Yeah. I've no trust in them now, my face do, is gone. Do you feel, Sonia, do you feel as a resident and as someone who's a, a customer, do you feel slighted by their decision not to attend? I felt absolutely slighted by them. It's just come and talk to us. It's a reasonable request. It was going to be a reasonable conversation. Mm. If, like, remember years ago there, PJ, and the council in the big freeze, they made a mistake. I don't know what the mistake was. Did they let out too much water? We had no water. Oh, that was the floods in 2009. Right. And we were, but what people, did they yeah. do, PJ? What did they do? They put tankers in every single car park. They did, they did. They had bottles of water. They gave us whatever, and they, they were out there for hours. That's right. They put their hands up and they said to us, as people... We messed up. Well, this well is what we've you're you're recalling 2009, the, yeah. the floods that blew in the wall down there by the Mercy Hospital yeah. and the other things yeah. like that. They wrecked the water supply, and you're absolutely correct. I was working for eight or nine days straight in the newsroom yeah. there, and I remember going out to standing tanks, and everywhere they could find a pipe, they brought up a standing pipe, they brought up tankers, and th- you're right, they they did that. There was clean, usable water, but for you, with gunk coming out of the tap. There's no but sign of that happening. Yeah. I mean, everyone's emailing them. Everyone's filling out those forms. I ring them. I can't do that, all that. I'm ringing them. Yeah. I want to hear what they're saying. I'm only talking to a person who's working there. Yeah. And that person has said to me, flush your water. I said, I have. I said, I'm up since 20 past six. I have flushed my water. My toilets, my taps are still running. Yeah. Nothing's happening, I said. Is it not up to you to bring me or put a tanker somewhere that we can have fresh water? But my thing is, PJ, if they're not willing to talk to us tonight, they don't have fresh water to give us. Well, you, you can assume anything you want when they've decided not to turn up. Yeah, and if you had bottled water, you're probably wondering, why, why does bottled water destroy your kettle? It's because, and this is according to a site we got from the UK, a lot Brilliant. of bottled waters have high levels of minerals like calcium. That will yeah. damage metal and damage coating in the element of the kettle and it works first of all. It'll break down the the seals and then get into the electronics. Bottled water will ruin your kettle. But Peter, who's the money to buy kettles? This is true. Who's the money to be replacing all your towels, all your shirts, your your underwear? I mean, it's just gone beyond a joke. Yeah. This was their opportunity to come out and say, 
this is what we're doing. We're doing our best. We're trying to hold their hands up, a small bit of accountability. Mm-hmm. That's all we want. All right. They have now refused yeah. to come to our table to speak to the people. I, it's great that they're talking to the councillors and they're doing this and they're doing everything. They're not talking to me. There's no one came to my door and said, look, show me it. Give me a look. Yeah, yeah. And, and people were hoping that they'd come along to this meeting. And Sonia, thank you. The people thought they'd come along to this meeting tonight. But just to reiterate the statement issued to the newsroom, to Maureen this morning... It says we fully understand and acknowledge, etc., especially in the light of significant investment, etc. Please be assured we're treating it as a matter of priority and are committed to working on the ground to address the issue. But here's the phrase that pays. We can confirm we received an invitation and that a representative from Ishka Aaron will not be available to attend. They attended Cork City Council's Environment Policy Committee on 16th of January. They met Imoctus members at a briefing on 24th November 2023. They are committed to ensuring communities are kept up to date, etc., etc. They have a helpline, they have Twitter, they have a website. But when invited to a public meeting in Cork tonight to address the situation, Ishka Aaron has declined that invitation and said it will not be attending. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96FM. Hi, it's Elmarie. Join myself and Connor every Sunday morning to find out what's happening in the arts all over Cork. There's so much happening. Fantastic festivals with great events for all ages. And we'll tell you all about them. The Arts House. Sunday mornings, 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes. For fantastic quality and great taste guaranteed. Choose Griffin's Potatoes. Pinks and Roosters. Corks 96FM. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96FM.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Corks 96FM. Message here that says, Hi, where are the council on this matter? The water. We're not a third world country. The issue with water is unacceptable. This is a public health issue. Unfortunately, the council no longer deals with the water. It's Irish water. Philip then says, Philip, okay, Philip, I'm going to read this. And I know people will get riled up, but I'm going to read it anyway. Philip says, we had a chance to fund the money to fix our water situation through water charges, as is done throughout Europe. But the people resisted it and the plan was cancelled. Now the refurbishment of pipes is going very slowly because the government doesn't have the funding available. So Philip is kind of saying, if I'm interpreting correctly, that the problem with dirty water on the north side, are you saying, Philip, and parts of the south side too, are you saying it's kind of half our own fault because we resisted water charges or because the people resisted water charges? I think that's what Philip is saying. Love to know what you think about that. 0818969696. With our friends at the Furniture Centre in Blackpool, Watercourse Road, all this week. And we have a €2,000 shopping spree to give away tomorrow. And we're taking a daily qualifier. You can choose from sofas or bedroom furniture, kitchen, dining, mattresses, free delivery, free assembly, and free removal of your old stuff. We have a sound from the sofa. So you're sitting there on the sofa 
and you can hear this, your sofa's battered and tattered and old and creaky and you want to replace it and you can hear this sound. Tell me what the sound is. Alright, it, it sounds a bit like a fella ringing the bell at the back of a church. Well, badly, but it's not. What is a dedication to all of it. What's that sound? What's that sound? Identify it, please. 083 396 96 96 and give me your name as well and we'll put you into the draw for our uh, qualification for today. Dr. Chris Luke was back on the phone and says, I meant to say one huge thing people can do to avoid hospitalization is to avail of their immunization whenever it's offered to them, like flu or MMR or COVID. Thank you, Chris. Listen to Cork's 96 FM while you work. While you work. Click listen live at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Hello. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96, 96, 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the opinion mine with PJ up on the north side of the city, indeed all over the city. I should really stop saying the north side because we've had reports from all over the city of Mankey Water over the last few months. Two contrasting views. You heard from Sonia, who feels very badly let down, insulted in fact, by Irish Water, Ishka Aaron's refusal to attend this public meeting tonight, which is going ahead, I think, at the Maldron at half past seven. Ishka Aaron and they sent a statement in to us said they will not be in a position to attend tonight's meeting. They they say the other meetings they've attended, the other people they're talking to, the other work that's ongoing, but they are unwilling, stroke unable, to attend the meeting tonight at the Maldron. Uh, it will not be represented. It's still going on, though, at half past seven. Sonia said she felt uh, insulted by that. And then Philip pretty much saying, look, lads, the state of the water is kind of your own fault. That's how I'm interpreting it. If I'm wrong, Philip, come back to me. But that's how I'm interpreting what Philip is saying. We had a chance to fund the water situation with charges, and as is done all over Europe. But we resisted it and the plan was cancelled. Now the refurbishment of the pipes is going very slowly because the government does not have the money. So Philip seems to be kind of, kind of blaming resistance to water charges back in the day. Your thoughts on that? 0818969696. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous says that its helpline in the first two weeks of 2024, answered 139 calls from women who felt they were in trouble with drinking and wanted help. That was compared to 30 calls in the same period, first couple of weeks of January in 2023. That's over four times as many. It says more and more people are now seeking support for problem drinking 
and indeed more and more people are looking for an AA meeting to attend. That's huge. Four times as many women seeking help with their drinking in the first two weeks of this year as were in the first two weeks of last year. Now, it could be a spike, it could be a blip, it could be a sign of far more serious problems. We don't really know, but those are the figures. Paula Leonard joins me. She's Chief Executive of Alcohol Forum Ireland. Whatever the reason, Paula, that's a very, very stark increase. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, it is what one might call a cause for concern. Um, You know, the Health Research Board have also um, been able to track an increase in presentations to addiction services across the country um, in January um, of this year. Um, That's not broken down yet. It would be too early to say men and women, they wouldn't have the figures. But we know the figures of people looking for help um, in relation to their alcohol use um, is increased in January. Now, there is seasonal things that happen every year. Christmas can be a really difficult time for families, can be a really difficult time for women, particularly who are living in any difficult situation. I'm thinking, you know, um, living with a dependent drinker, um, domestic violence spikes over the Christmas, um, family tension spikes over Christmas. You know, for some of us, that's just a low level in terms of complex family relationships and people coming home. But for more vulnerable people, it can be a really difficult time. So January into February tends to be when people have sort of hit that point where they now need to reach out and they should reach out throughout the year for help and support. Um, and, you know, that that this is a concern and we are glad that people are talking about it. Do you know the way, Paula, we all kind of say in the first week of January, right, I'm going to take it easy now, put away the bottle of wine, away the can of beer. I'm not touching a drink for a few days or at least a week or sometimes the whole month. And for most of us, it's not a problem. But do people realise that, hold on a second, I'm not, no, can't get through the day without a glass of wine. That's the start of a problem, isn't it? Well, I think if people have an alcohol dependency um, or if you have any sort of problem and you're consuming large amount of alcohol, um, you know, three to four nights a week or days a week, Um, giving up alcohol without support and without medical advice, there are some risks associated with it. So Mm. people have come through that sort of heavy drinking period over the Christmas and they think it may be longer. They really do need to go to their GP. So while we would say that, you know, abstaining from alcohol, giving up alcohol, cutting back on alcohol can have really good health benefits. If you are in any way worried that you could be at a stage of alcohol use dependency, you really need medical advice um, because there are, you know, there are risks associated with this sort of sharp, unsupervised detox. Um, the other thing, though, is addiction services also get a lot of do not attends in January. You know, so exactly what you're talking about, people may have the best will in the world and that that I'm done, you know, I need a bit of help, I'll make a call. Um, and then people don't have the courage to show up. It's really important, you know, tell a friend, tell a family member, get support that helps you and encourages you to go ahead and get yourself in and sit in front of a skilled person who can help you um, in that tough period um, at the beginning of the year. Mm. You say yourself, women often use alcohol for self-medicating and for dealing with trauma. Expand a little bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, women who attend addiction services, they have higher rates of PTSD 
um, those are estimated from research to be somewhere between 30 and 59%. So almost 60, almost 6 in 10 women who attend addiction services um, have PTSD. And lifetime trauma, so childhood trauma, um, a history of domestic or sexual violence, um, and that can be up to 80% of women. So, you know, in Ireland, we do have some wonderful programmes that are looking at both trauma and addiction for women who are seeking safety. Um, a lot of those are, unfortunately, and fortunately for the people of Dublin, but a lot of them are in and around the Dublin area. So you have one in Drogheda and one in Roscommon outside of that area. But I think it's really important now that we've opened up this conversation to start looking at it and saying, well, you know, if we don't have a specialised service in our area, what can addiction services be doing um, to recognise this as an issue, to talk about it as an issue and to make sure that there's timely and appropriate support for women? Because the sort of old fashioned generic model where you were only dealing with the alcohol problem on its own um, that needs to be able to address sort of the other issues that women are presenting with, which in the main, we're not saying that, you know, trauma isn't an issue for men. We're not saying any of those things, mm. but we are saying quite clearly there's higher rates of PTSD among women who experience addiction. There's mm. higher rates of trauma among women who experience addiction. Mm. So, you know, these are quite heavy topics, but we have to talk about them. They, they are, and it's it's good to have you here to talk about them. Is there a, is there a link or a correlation even Paula, between perimenopause and use of alcohol, busy lives, hormones gone a bit crazy, couple of kids tearing the house down, the, the the temptation to reach for the bottle of vino to calm yourself down. Does it happen a lot? Um, I have seen nothing, and I like to read. Uh, I've not seen nothing that looks at sort of a clinical or chemical sort of correlation between those two things. What I do know is that the alcohol industry has heavily marketed alcohol to women over the last number of years. So if you go back even to the 1960s in Ireland, 40% of our population didn't drink at all. So a significant number of people were abstainers from alcohol. The alcohol industry would have looked at that and targeted that and said, well, we actually need to get more women drinking. Um, and when we have them drinking, we need to have them drinking at higher levels of consumption. So we have really sophisticated strategies. We have product placement. I'm go back as far as I'm of an age where, you know, generation who watched The Good Wife and Friends, you know, product placement, mm. seeing women aspirationally that people might like to be like, working hard, playing hard, trying to juggle parenting, all of those things. But the notion was that alcohol was your reward or your release or how you might cope with the, you know, the stress for women who are both working and still have the burden of childcare in the home and yeah. still have that domestic burden. So we've been told and programmed and socialised into believing that a legal psychoactive substance that is a depressant, actually, it's chemically a depressant, but we have been sold a pup. We've been told that this is something that'll help you cope and rather than saying go out and swim in the sea or have a walk or meet some friends for a cup of tea, we've been told that, you know, opening that bottle of wine at 10 o'clock of the evening when you have that one hour to yourself and the house is quiet that that's a good thing for you and something that you should be doing. It's interesting that you should say about the, the marketing of it Paula because shall we just say I would know somebody I have an old friend who spent their life in retail and we've talked yeah. many times about the science of yeah. retail layout yeah. and it's no coincidence that off-license sections, for example, in large supermarkets, 
they come almost right in the middle of the household items. It's also no coincidence that when you push your way into the off-licence, one of the first things you see is white wine. Because, according to this friend of mine, they did some research and they found that the biggest consumers of cheap to middle-range priced white wine were women in their 30s to early 40s. Yeah. Who also do the family shopping. Yeah. You know, the alcohol industry says that they want to contribute and be seen as good corporate partners. Do you know what I mean? That they, they have some sort of a social good in mind. They have one objective, and that is to increase profit margins for their shareholders. They know this stuff really well. They research this stuff really well. They spend millions on it every year. Like, I mean, for example, the alcohol industry, without a shadow of a doubt, is engaged in cancer denialism. Um, so they want to confuse the evidence. What? Oh, sorry. Denying the link between alcohol and cancer. Okay. So al- alcohol is a group one carcinogen. So for any of your listeners, that basically means that alcohol is considered to be in the same category as asbestos and in the same category as tobacco. Now, it would you if you were to do a straw poll or a vox pop in Cork today, you would find that most people will admit and understand and know of the link between tobacco and cancer. Mm. We are in the same category of that and people don't know it, people don't talk about it um, and we have heavily um, marketed strategies in the alcohol industry that are there to deny that okay. or to confuse that's, it or to detract attention away from that's, it. That's, that's, so, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we really need to start seeing through the fog do you know what I mean in terms of these things? Mm-hmm. Because in this country, you know, um, it's really important that women know that one in seven breast cancers in this country are related to alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. Sorry, one in eight breast cancers in this country are related to alcohol consumption. And is that, so, Holly, you look, you're, you're talking to someone here, I'm naming cards on the table, you're talking to someone who likes to drink. You're also not over to, not to over excess, but I do like to drink. And I'm married to someone who likes to drink. Um, we don't smoke, either of us. Are you saying we're as much, in as much danger from a casual drink or two than we are from cigarettes? What I'm saying is to define whether what class of carcinogenic something is, there is a WHO scientific project around that. And it is back in 2020, 2012 that the WHO declared that alcohol is a group one carcinogenic um, substance. So that means that for us, to translate that for your listeners into simple terms, that drinking alcohol increases your risk of seven different types of cancer. Okay. So okay. this is the beginning of the year. By the end of this year, there will be almost a thousand new cancers in Ireland that are related to alcohol. And there will be 500 deaths in Ireland that are related to alcohol. Okay. Um, that rarely makes the headlines. That's rarely talked about. Um, and we rarely um, challenge the false information that the alcohol industry are peddling on that. Okay. Lastly, this has come in on the phone. Uh, this person asking, as they say, asking for a friend, but you know yourself. A glass or two That's of okay. wine every <laughs> night. Is that possibly becoming a problem? Look, one standard drink a day is associated with a 9% increase Um for your risk of developing breast cancer. So alcohol, so when we think about alcohol harms, you know, people will think of liver. Um, They should also be thinking of brain. 
Um, but we rarely, those, those health issues we associate, and actually a lot of the science associates with heavy level drinking. The issue in relation to alcohol and cancer is that even relatively low levels of alcohol consumption increase your risk. Okay. All so right. that is, you know, the sort of the big head in the sand piece that we need to get our head around. I'm not telling people it's not my business and it's not my job to say to people don't drink alcohol, but it is my job to say to people if you drink alcohol, you should be aware of the risks. All right. Uh, so make an informed decision. That's right. where we'd like to be. All right. <laughs> Paula, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation. Paula Leonard, Chief Executive of Alcohol Forum Ireland. Huge numbers of women reporting possible problems or suspected problems with drinking. And we went down another road with Paula. We should remember that when we are having a drink, it is, alcohol is a carcinogen, just like tobacco, smoking is a carcinogen. Alcohol is also a carcinogen and a dangerous one. We should be aware of it when we're having the few drinks. Thank you, Paula. 0818-96-96-96. Now, I'll be talking shortly to a man who reckons his piece of equipment, his DNA equipment, could help to progress the investigation into the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. I'll speak with uh, Jared Bradley in a while, but there's a piece in the Irish Independent this morning that's interesting. Um, Mr Bailey died Sunday afternoon. He collapsed in Bantry. A massive cardiac arrest. He, he was pronounced dead at the scene, we now seem to know. He was then cremated on Tuesday, which really took people by surprise because we thought it would be longer before he would be um, buried or cremated or whatever was going to happen to him, but it happened very quietly, very privately. On Tuesday, he was cremated, and his his um, ashes will be sent to his sister. I didn't know he had a sister, but Ralph Regal is writing in the Irish Independent today, Southern Correspondent, that uh, Mr. Bailey, he hadn't been Ralph when he passed away. He was he was broke. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, PJ. It's very sad. I think it's very sad to see any human being um, in at that particular um, state and condition. And uh, there was there was several of us actually. You, you'd know a lot of the lads, Barry from the Irish Times and Olivia, the freelance, and Anne Mooney from the the Irish Sun, Paul mm-hmm. Byrne. We were all down in um, Clonakilty District Court last summer, <clears throat> and of course, Ian Bailey was convicted. I think it was two years ago now of uh, drug driving. And there's quite a lengthy um, appeal to that conviction winding its way through the uh, the, the, the Circuit um, Court of Appeals. And we happened to be in Clonakilty District Court for it. And uh, Ian was there. And I have to say, it was actually shocking um, to see the condition that he was in. Um, for, I, I met him back in 97 when he had that, that shades of a kind of a Shakespearean lead actor, raven black hair, tall, very distinguished looking man, very handsome man. And he was just really in a shocking condition. I mean, he was stooped. He was gaunt. Um, I thought he had a very grey pallor um, on his face. His clothing had clearly seen better days. He was actually barefoot wearing a pair of Moses sandals. And despite the fact that it was kind of quite a wet and miserable day. And, I mean, one of the lads turned to me and said that really they, they, they didn't think he was very well and they didn't think that 
the prognosis was very good going forward and that was ever before he had suffered those heart attacks at the tail end of last year. But you could kind of see from his physical appearance um, that he really didn't have a whole pile um, since the breakdown of the relationship with Jules Thomas. Of course, he was involved in a 30-year relationship with Jules Thomas mm. and he lived at her property at the prairie outside Liscaha and he had to move out of the house. The relationship broke up, I think it was in March 2021 and I think it was a couple of weeks afterwards that he moved out and he's been bouncing around rented accommodation since then and I think lifestyle factors over that same period didn't do him any favours but essentially what happened at the weekend was when he collapsed and died um, his entire estate basically is comprised of clothing um, some items of wood turning and uh, massive amounts of files comprising both legal documents and newspaper clippings, magazine clippings and correspondence to do with the Sophie Tosca and the Plantier case mm. and the various actions that he has fought as part of his bid to protest his innocence um, over the past 27 years. He lived in a very modest little flat in Bantry. <laughs> He did, he did, he did. Again, another element, I suppose, that you'd say has to, the only word you can really use for it, it's quite sad, is that he had spent really the last 30 years in the greater Skull, Skibbereen area, and he wanted to stay there, um, but n- no one would rent. Once people found out that he was the tenant, uh, there was no property available for him. So he ended up staying for a while in the Glengariff area, and then he had to leave that property and eventually he got a property in Bantry. And he would, he was a familiar figure in Bantry. He would kind of wander around Bantry. He would go to various markets. He would call into bookshops and libraries and stuff. Uh, farmers markets were really his main social outlet uh, in the last couple of years. That was also his only other source of income beyond um, his state pension. Mm. Uh, he would sell wood turnings. He would sell um, some of his poetry books. Uh, people would often go and ask for photographs with him and he'd give a photograph so long as someone would actually, you know, buy one of his poetry books, which he would then sign. He wrote two books. Uh, one is called The West Cork Way and the other is called The John Wayne State of Mind. But even in, in towards the latter end of the year, his health was such that he really wasn't even able to go to mm-hmm. um, any of the farmer's markets. Yeah. He left no will. Uh, people were thinking now that he would, now that he'd passed away, somebody would find an envelope with a letter in it. Um, you know, saying, well, if he didn't do it, who did? Or anything like that, you know? But nothing yeah. was found. No, not not as yet anyway, PJ. And certainly the indications we have is that there's no formal will uh, made out. Um, it was a story that Paul Byrne was doing a couple of days ago that Paul Byrne did an interview with uh, Frank Bottomer, who was Mr. Bailey's longtime solicitor. And he had said, look, you know, what, he, he knew he wasn't well. And he, they had talked about various things to prepare for the future but events overtook them. So our, um, Mr. Bottomer wouldn't con- confirm or deny that there was a will, but our understanding is that there isn't. And similarly, a lot of people had thought that there might have been some type of documentation left with the instruction that it was to be opened in the event of Mr. Bailey's death, but no such document um, exists, or certainly none, none has been found or none has been yeah. flagged in advance at this stage. There's a significant amount of correspondence. I mean, people who would have watched the various um, documentaries of course, you had Jim Sheridan's um, Murder at the Cottage, which was done for Sky TV, and then you had a Netflix documentary. And anybody who would have watched those would have seen the meticulous care that Mr. Bailey took over the years to document and keep mm. records of the various things that he had been involved in as part of this case. 
And there was various images in those documentaries of boxes and boxes of correspondence, letters, photographs, uh, things to do with his various court actions as well. Of course, remember that Ian Bailey has had a number of very high-profile court actions in uh, 2003. You covered this with us, PJ, the, 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 the libel actions before the Cork Circuit Civil Court where Ian Bailey sued eight Irish and British newspapers. That opened in December 2003 and we had the verdict then, uh, the, the, the costs uh, was settled in January 2004. Mm-hmm. Then in 2014, Ian Bailey took a wrongful arrest action to the High Court uh, against the state. That ran really until the end of 2015. He also uh, lodged an objection or a complaint with the Garda Ombudsman Commission over the way he was treated by the Gardaí in West Cork as part of the... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Their investigation into the death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier on December the 23rd, 1996. And again, it's worth pointing out, Ian Bailey was arrested twice by the Gardaí. He was arrested in February of 1997 and he was arrested in January of 1998. Mm. And on both occasions, he was released without charge. Yeah. Tom is asking those notes and letters and stack of stuff that was... One assumes that they'll be examined and read through by cold case unit or whomever. Um, my understanding, PJ, and I could stand to be corrected on this, but I think if the Gardaí want to have access to them, they may need a warrant. And certainly there's been no indication as yet that a warrant has been sought. Okay. So again, I think that's going to be an issue between Mr. Bailey's next of kin. Now, we understand that his next of kin is his sister, Kay Reynolds, who is based in the UK. And uh, the only time that she came to, to public notice here in Ireland before was that she gave evidence on behalf of her brother uh, during the High Court action between 2014 and 2015. Mm-hmm. And her evidence particularly revolved around the fact that because the French had tried on three separate, or sorry, three separate occasions to have Mr. Bailey extradited, and the first of those European arrest warrants was issued in 2010. And Mr. Bailey always maintained that because of his fear of arrest, he never left Ireland, so he was afraid that if he went back to his native UK, of course, he was born in Manchester and brought up in Gloucester, 
that if he travelled to the UK, he would put himself at risk of arrest yeah. or detention under the terms of that European arrest warrant. So on that basis, when his mother was dying, he never went back to see her before her death yeah. or to attend her funeral. And that was the evidence that Kay Reynolds gave on his behalf back in 2014, 2015. There were some who said, Ralph, that over the last few years since his relationship with Jules broke down and he was living pretty much destitute in West Cork, there were those who said that he could have gone home to the UK but that he was afraid he'd be arrested if he if he tried. Were you surprised, Ralph, lastly, were you surprised at how quickly he was cremated and, and all that was done? Yes, I was, PJ. I mean, I can understand why, and I think from the family's point of view, I think there was a genuine fear that if they had any type of private or even semi-public ceremony for him here or funeral, that it would be just, there'd be an enormous media attention on it. And, you know, I think I think they wanted whatever was going to happen to happen outside the limelight. I think it was the speed of it that really took me by surprise that it was done within 48 hours. So and none of us knew. None of us. No, and, it, and that was deliberate. And it was, it was uh, for instance, there was a, an undertaker that was from outside West Cork, brought the, bo- the body to the crematorium. And there was no comment made until several hours after the event, yeah. when in a very brief statement, Mr. Butterworth confirmed that he had been um, empowered or allowed, dis- instructed by the next of kin to confirm that Mr. Bailey had been cremated and that his ashes would be returned to his family. Um, I think... As an observation, and it was something actually that Anne Mooney, the Irish son, had, had noted in a piece that she filed yesterday. It, it it was, in many ways, quite an ironic thing that Ian Bailey, who, who over his life had been very much obsessed by the media, by the limelight. On the one hand, he was a man of incredible contradictions. He said that media attention had destroyed his life in Ireland. But yet at the same time, he was a man that really courted publicity he would always take phone calls from reporters there were times when i got phone calls from him asking me did i want comments from him about (laughs) about developments in the case yeah one or two texts like that over the years as well myself he he was never afraid Uh, to reach out exactly you'd be familiar with the pj and i think Anne's comment was that for a man who had spent his life posing for photographs giving commentary giving quotes being in the limelight it was a total contrast that the only people that were present for the cremation were the crematorium staff and the undertakers. Very lastly and very briefly, Ralph, I'll ask you this one. And you, of course, have written a book on this and have covered it from day one. Now that he has passed to his maker, will we ever know, do you think, will we ever really know what happened on that night in December 1996? Uh, definitively, I don't think so, PJ. No, no, I don't. I think we, we may get um, a few more indicators. Um, I mean, certainly the, the death of Ian Bailey does not end things. I mean, the Garda murder investigation is ongoing. The Garda cold case review is ongoing. The cold case review team will make recommendations to the Garda murder team. And I think the indications are that the file will be submitted, a revised file, an updated file will be submitted to the Director of Public Prosecutions. But whether we get any type of instruction or direction that the DPP would have contemplated um, action against a particular individual, I'm not sure that it's ever going to go that far. And certainly from the French family's point of view, and I think really they're the ones whose words we have to attach greatest weight to, is the very last thing that they wanted was Ian Bailey to pass away. They wanted him... um, 
to stay alive, to stay healthy and to be alive for when the cold case review would end in the hope that there might be some judicial action here in Ireland. But they're they're very, I think, upset with the Irish state that um, while just they see that justice was done for Sophie in Paris, and a lot of people would take issue with that over various aspects of the Paris prosecution, but in their eyes, justice was done for Sophie in France justice was never done for Sophie here in Ireland. Okay, Ralph, leave it there. Thank you, as always. Ralph Regal, a Southern correspondent with the Irish Independent, indeed wrote a book on that uh, case. I'll get the title of it. I have to dig it out of my memory, but uh, it's a super, super read. Thank you, Ralph. 0818969696. There is a man in Utah who believes he has a gadget that might help us know more about what did happen on that night in 1996, and I will speak with him next. 0818969696. Hi there, Trying Tuberty here. Be part of my new adventure this Sunday on Cork's 96 FM. Cork's 96 FM. I'll have something for everyone with a mixture of conversation, laughter, and great music. Talk to you this Sunday from 10 a.m. The Ryan Tuberty Show on Sunday in association with High and I. For every kind of driver, there's a High and I. Find yours at highandi.ie. Cork's 96 FM. Jared Bradley is a former soldier and scientist who's gained the nickname the DNA guy. He has pioneered a piece of equipment called MVAC. It's a system which extracts DNA and he believes that it could help to solve the killing of Sophie Toscan Duplantier Uh, and he's out there waiting to be called in by the cold case reinvestigation team. He joins me now uh, from Utah. Jared, tell me first, if you would please, what MVAC is and what it can do. Good morning. Oh, good morning to you too. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to come on. The MVAC is essentially a, a sterile wet vacuum. So imagine like a, a carpet cleaner where it sprays a solution down onto a surface and then vacuums up whatever's there. So uh, it doesn't have brushes like a carpet cleaner would, but the combination of the spray and the vacuum creates a little mini hurricane down there at the surface, and that enables it to collect DNA that is down in the cracks and crevices of a surface that uh, you know swabbing and other methods just can't get to. It might have been there for a very long time, so can the machine dislodge it so it can be, be removed? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it works. So uh, if, if the amazing thing about DNA is if the evidence is stored properly, then it can last for a long time. Like uh, we've, we've had cases that I think our record right now is 56 years old. Wow. So, yeah, the, the, the DNA was trapped in, in the seam of a, a sleeve of a, of a shirt. And, yeah, 56 years old. You know, most evidence lockers are climate controlled, and so if it's in a if it's in a relatively dry, uh, cool place, then that DNA can last for a long time. Fifty six years ago, there was no DNA technology. No, no, yeah, it wasn't even a, a thought then. You know, DNA didn't really come onto the scene until really mid nineties, late late nineteen nineties. So, uh, and and I think it wasn't really starting to get sensitive until the 2000s. So, uh, the, yeah, the case I, w- I want to say is 1967 or 66, something like that. 
Wow. Well, and you know, if you manage to extract DNA from something like a, a shirt that's 50-something years old, will that evidence then be admissible in, in a, in a modern-day court? That's the fascinating question. You know, I'm not familiar w- with the Ireland courts, but uh, here in the U.S., absolutely. You know, it's, is again, the chain of custody is important. Uh, as long as it's been maintained by law enforcement, then sure. And I'm sure Ireland has the exact yeah. same thing. So if there's something to work off, you can work with it. Your interest in this particular case, I'm sure I don't need to rehash the history with you. How did you come to hear of the Sophie Toskin Duplantia case in the first place, Jared? Well, I was actually contacted by uh, a couple of different news agents, you know, or newspapers, and they, they kind of brought the brought it to my attention. And, you know, of course, we have interest in any case that we can help solve anywhere in the world. You know, we've we've been all over the place, uh, you know, South Africa and Singapore, you know, all, you name it. We've just about been there. And cases like this, typically the detectives have have gone down every avenue they can possibly think of and and explored wherever the evidence has taken them and wherever the story has taken them. You know, they've explored it to and, and just hit dead ends on on the wherever they are. And, you know, DNA with the way that it's that it's uh, advancing, especially the, as technology gets more and more sensitive, it's just reopened a lot of cases like this. And so uh, the similarities between, uh, you know, this particular case that we're, we're talking about and some of the other ones like Crystal Bislanowicz uh, is a is a case here in, in the United States that was a cold case for almost 18 years. Tell me a bit about that case, because I know you worked on it, and it was a breakthrough. It was a similar case to, to Sophie. Yeah, yeah, The uh, not only in the time frame, but also the, the evidence uh, and the, the murder weapon, especially because it was a, a several granite rocks that the victim was beaten to death. She was, she was like 17, uh, wayward teen, and just having having problems, you know, with, uh, prostitution and, and drugs and things. And, um, one night she just kind of disappeared and they, a farmer and his son, uh, found her the next day, uh, on the side of a, a river, kind of a river bank in uh, Utah. And, and she had been bludgeoned to death with two rocks in particular that were big enough that they could be held like a man could hold it with one hand, mm-hmm. uh, but small enough that, uh, you know, they, they could do a lot of damage. So they, they had tried to swab several times, um, but, you know, swabbing, it's physics. You, you d- the swab material just can't get into those little cracks and crevices where a lot of that DNA is going to be. And, but the MVAC, again, with the solution vacuum combination, uh, is able to penetrate deeper and uh, cause that DNA material, you know, the, in this case is probably skin cells, to dislodge from the rock and then be collected. And so that's how they got the that's how they got the profile. So you were able to, your machine was able to lift from the rock DNA of who had handled it on the night of the moon. Correct. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they had. Um, in swab, well, it, just in DNA in general, with how sensitive things are now, you need about a half a nanogram. I think it's like one one millionth of a gram 
to, to actually produce a profile. So the MVAC collected 21 nanograms, so 42 times more than what they needed to produce a good profile. So, yeah, there was plenty of DNA there, that, but the swabbing just, you know, it's not the swab's fault. It's it's just a physical device. It just physically can't get in there. Now, you believe that the MVAC would help if you could use it on the, the evidence collected in uh, Sophie's murder, correct? Well, I think it's a good chance. I haven't been able to actually see the evidence. Typically, I, I don't like to say, yes, it'll help until, you know, I've, I've actually had a chance to examine the evidence or, or somebody else that is a like an MVAC expert. So, you know, the detectives ultimately need to make that decision. But in, in cases like this, where they've tried everything else, they've, they've reached a point where uh, if they don't do something, you know, different than what they've done in the past, then it's just going to stay a cold case. Well, that's the perfect example of a case where they've then turned to the MVAC. At least they have a shot. Because it was a particularly brutal crime. The, the poor woman was bludgeoned to death. There's got to be DNA somewhere. I would have thought as a layman anyway, Jared. I would too. And just just what I've read, uh, the different stories, and apparently she was down at the end of her driveway, some somewhere around there. Down and, near the road, yeah. She she lived in a house up on a hill, and she was found down by the road, yeah. Well, if she's bludgeoned to death with, uh, you know, a rock or a slab, and then when, whenever the the killer... Got done with that. He picked up a, a cinder block. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, and and you know beat on her some more. Uh, that that alone uh, that tells me a lot. Yeah. Uh, just based on on what I'm what I've seen in the past. Whoever the killer was, the brutality of it alone tells me that this person knew the victim. At least that's my you know I'm not an investigator, but uh, to me and just taking experience. Of, of seeing this in the past, it, this isn't just like a random happenstance like that. It was a frenzied, vicious attack. The, there is a cold case investigation underway, as I'm sure you're aware. Are you formally or informally offering your services to the cold case team? And by the way, that cold case team includes someone who only recently helped to solve a 40-year-old murder case using trace DNA. So the, the expertise is also on the cold case team. Are you offering your services, Jared? Well, of course, we're, we're always interested in, in helping wherever we can. If the detectives determine that uh, the MVAC would be of, of uh, benefit to, to use on the evidence, then, yeah, I'd, I'd love to help. If the detectives want to work with us, then we'd love to help. I'm particularly fascinated by the, the nature of your technology, the time Time doesn't actually matter. A 57-year-old short, you had another 43-year-old murder. Was it in Texas? Yeah, that one was just solved uh, about a year ago. A little 12-year-old girl was kidnapped. Um, She was swimming with her brothers, and then they had left a few minutes before her. And a guy, he was a serial killer, serial rapist, uh, grabbed her, threw her in a truck, and then drove about three miles away to a field and uh, raped and killed her and they found her about six days later she was wearing a t-shirt and a swimsuit they had again they had tried 
the the more traditional methods of of swabbing and i talked to uh the csi that did it and she said she literally was like using her fingers to to pry apart the the fabric and trying to swab every last inch of that t-shirt uh but it wasn't until she used the mvac that she got the profile so it just it just gets magnitudes more of whatever is on that surface than what a swab can so when you're talking just minute amounts of, of DNA material, then uh, in, in cases like that, it's just critical that you collect it. Jared, your, your device sounds fascinating. The science behind it is, is amazing stuff. And if we could use it or if it could be used to solve this horrific case in our community, I think a lot of people would be very grateful uh, to you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jared. That's uh, Jared uh, Bradley joining me from from Utah, DNA guy. Yeah, Ralph Regal's book on the Sophie Toscan de Plantier murder is called A Dream of Death. It should still be in any good bookshop, bookshop or you'll pick it up for your Kindle or whatever. A Dream of Death. It's a super, super read about that awful case. 0818969696. We're with our friends at the Furniture Centre, Watercourse Road, Blackpool, all of this week. A €2,000 shopping spree, which we will give away tomorrow. Uh, you can choose from sofas or bedroom or kitchen or dining or mattresses, whatever. Free delivery, uh, free assembly if you need it, and free removal of your old stuff. €2,000 worth of a shopping spree tomorrow. So you're sitting on your dodgy little sofa that needs replacing and you can hear a sound coming from somewhere around the house. And I want you to tell me what that sound is. All right. It's kind of a tough one today, I think. What What is that sound? Okay, 083-396-9696. Tell us what that is. And attach your name. You might be today's qualifier. Tomorrow, then, we will draw from our five daily qualifiers. We will draw our winner. 0818969696. Lots of stuff in on the water situation. You may or may not have heard. There is a meeting tonight at the Maldron in Shandon at half past seven to discuss the state of Cork City's manky, dirty water. And Ishka Aaron has declined to attend. It has said it will not be represented. We did get a statement from Ishka Aaron, uh, issued to the newsroom here at 96FM. We received an invitation. We can confirm that a representative from Ishka Aaron will not be able to attend. They will not tell us of what they have attended and what they are doing, but they won't be at that meeting tonight. They say they're treating the matter, mind you, as an utmost priority and they are committed to working on the ground to address the issue. But they're not committed enough to send anyone to the meeting. Uh, there's been quite a reaction to that. People very angry about it. And also Philip commented that, well, you know, lads, if we had continued to go down the road of water charges like everybody else in Europe, then we mightn't be in this mess because we don't have the money now to repair the system. There's been a bit of a pushback on that, I might tell you. And I'll read some of those comments in the next hour. Also talking earlier with Paula Leonard about alcohol and women. Uh, Paula is the chief executive of Alcohol Forum Ireland, and she was making some comments about how alcohol 
is being aimed at women and marketed at women. And we were discussing how in particular things like white wine on sale in retail spaces where there's a science in the placing of everything in a supermarket. Don't ever think it's randomly chucked up on the shelf. There's a science in it. And how they place drink within supermarkets is very, very significant. And we'll get to that. Sandra has a few points that she wants to make, and I'll come to Sandra after news. Won't get to her now unless she can do it all in about one minute, which I doubt. But just a quick response to what uh, was saying about the, the water. Philip, he said, how many of us are living in areas with water we can't drink, that their babies can't use, that damage our clothes or appliances? Are those people expected to pay for their water too? Why it's being fixed and takes years to be fixed? It's a bit more chicken and egg than Philip's comment is making out. You have to have a product that's somewhat worth the price before you start charging for it. Our water network is below European spec. And Brian Gould, and I'll read the rest of this later, Brian says it's typical. There's one. Brian was one of the old water charge campaigners. It's typical of Irish water, Ishgaran, to shun public meetings. They have always ignored opportunities to discuss the future of tap water in Ireland. That and plenty more after the news. The two grand minute. Listen to play at seven forty and eight forty every day. I'm in love with the money. Answer ten questions in sixty seconds to claim two thousand euros. Two thousand euros. The Two Grand Minute. With Cork Dental Care, you'll be all smiles when you see their treatments with Invisalign at CorkDentalCare.ie. Lorraine and Ross in the morning. Money. On Cork's 96FM. The lines are live. Hello. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 Email opinion at 96FM.ie. This is the opinion. In line with PJ Coogan. Parks 96 FM. Yeah, that decision by uh, Ishka Aaron, Irish Water, to refuse to attend a public meeting in Cork tonight. Uh, that's opened up some old sores and old wounds for people to reiterate again their statement as issued to the newsroom here at Corks 96 FM. They confirmed they received an invitation that a representative from Ishka Aaron will not be available to attend. They're fully aware of the meeting going ahead, but they will not be attending. And people not happy about that. Uh, Tony says, when I was involved in the water campaign, uh, even then, still, the council workers would come out to call-outs at all hours of the day and night, and they'd give it 110%. Since it's been outsourced and commercialised, it's hard to get a repair after 5 o'clock with all the companies involved, you don't get the same effort put in to make sure it's all sorted in one call. It's a disaster and should be brought back under council control. Philip pushed back a bit in a message to the show and said, look, this is kind of what happened when we refused or when people refused to pay water charges and campaigned against water charges, refused to pay water charges and eventually the plan was scrapped and people claimed a victory but Philip is kind of saying, well, be careful what you wish for, because this is what happens. I think so this message is more the privatisation of water than the actual paying for it that most people were protesting about. 
The UK has had many problems since the privatisation of water. Brian then, Brian Gould was one of the original water campaigners just on the show quite regularly back in the day. During the water charges campaign, Irish Water ignored many opportunities to discuss the future of tap water in Ireland. In the 10 years since the company's been established, about 4% of the water infrastructure has been refurbished. It's glacial pace and not good enough. A big capital investment is needed from the government. And he says, we pay for water every single day through various taxations. Tax revenues are buoyant. We have been we and have been for a good few years. Brian, coming back to the old argument always made by the campaigners that we are already paying for our water through our existing taxes. The problem isn't funding from water charges or the lack of it. It started with the partial privatization of the services through outsourced contractors and private suppliers that pushed up the cost. When a lot of the work and supplies were in-house, the budget for fixing and refurbishing the water network was far lower. And again, still more coming in on that water. Following, as you've heard in the news, the refusal of Ishka Aaron to attend a public meeting tonight in Cork to discuss the state of water and the dirty, filthy water. We talked earlier with Paula from the Alcohol uh, Awareness Group, the um, Alcohol Forum Ireland, Paula Leonard, their chief executive, about the number of women now reporting with alcohol problems, Alcoholics Anonymous. Huge figures, uh, 139 calls from women in the first two weeks of 2024 compared to 30 calls in the same period of last year. We had a long and varied chat with Paul Leonard from the Alcohol Forum about that. Sandra, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. What would you like to say? Um, like, uh, the first thing people do at night, well, I think the majority would be women. They finish their jobs for the day and they go to sit down and watch our soaps. Okay. Right? Every soap that is on TV at the moment is based in a pub. Let me think about that, uh, yeah. Coronation Street uh, has the Rovers. EastEnders has, I forget the, the Vic, name. The uh, Vic. The Queen Victoria. Queen Vic. And Fair City yeah. has McCoy's, yeah. yeah. Um, and you has know, the Woolpack, yeah. You're right, yeah, actually. All of them, all of them. And even if you go to a restaurant, you know, if they go to their little cafes or whatever, they still can get a glass of wine. Yeah. So, you know... Their drink alcohol is kind of in everything surrounded in the programs that women watch. That's very interesting. They would be more female-based, you know, programs. I know men watch them as well. But it would be, you know, their high viewers would be women. And even like we'd say, the other programs like the Housewives of Beverly Hills or wherever, all these kind of programs as well. They're all, you know, most of the scenes are shown with a glass of wine in their hand. Mm. You know, you wouldn't see actually whiskey or beer. It's always a wine. Yeah. You know, and it's it's kind of like you think, oh God, you know, I'll be cool as like them, or I'm going to be as glamorous because I have a glass of wine. Yeah. You, you know, oh, I'm going to have a glass of wine now as I sit down and watch TV tonight. And if you hear, like I hear people there, no, I don't drink at all myself. But you know, if you're out and you hear people, oh, geez, I'm just getting a bottle of wine now for Friday night. Mm-hmm. That's grand to have your bottle of wine once a week or whatever. Yeah. You know, people work hard. But like it's, like a thing is, I must have the wine. You know, you, it's out there like yeah. this bottle of wine is so important to people. Like I often went into Aldi's there, and you know, it'd be just before ten o'clock. 
Mm. And you see, it has always been women. And they've been actually jumping the queue so they can get their bottles before 10 o'clock. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen this myself. Because I was laughing at them, Jesus, all the alcoholics are tonight joking, you know? Mm. And, like, you can see, um, you know, that they're in just before the cut-off time to buy their bottles. Yeah. Can you know, we come so, back to the soaps and, and, and the pubs in, in, in the soaps? And I just realised, I don't watch the soaps anymore, but I was able to name the pub in every major soap to give you some idea of how much of an interest. But come back, I, I happened to find myself watching the last 10 minutes of Fair City on Sunday night. I was waiting for the 9 o'clock news. And again, there was a scene in the pub. And the one thing I was thinking of, here they were ladling the drinks down to the tables for people. No question on the outrageous price of drink at the moment, like, as if it was water. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, you know, and we never see them handing money over the bars either. That's true. Or, or to you know, we, we've, No, we don't actually. Exactly, we've never actually seen anything like that. That's true, Sandra, you're You right. know what I mean? And, like, as I said, I don't drink, and, like, I wouldn't be in pubs or things like that. But, like, you can see it, you know, yeah. when we're out. It's, it, you know, when you hear other people talking about drink. Yeah. And, like, even if I said to um, oh, I don't drink, Oh, you don't drink, and I said, no, you know. Yeah. You know, it's not do something... Do they, they, they ever ask Quasramacha, which is the other question? The other you, you, you say as well that the programmes, and again, this is a, an interesting observation, they seldom feature people whose lives have been broken by alcohol. But that's it. That's the thing you see as well. We never see the alcoholics that their lives have been destroyed. It's all glamorising this bottle of wine. Mm. You know, um, which which is it's a pity, you know, because like I'd seen this years ago, and I think I probably was even on with you, maybe going back a few years ago about it as well. But like, could they not glamorize something else that's more important in our everyday lives? Mm. You know, um, you know, even just if it was a bottle of water that they were saying, "Oh, we're on the water tonight," or something. You know what I mean? Or, but mm. it's it's always alcohol that's the highlight of whatever they're going to drink. Mm. Which, which you know, and like say, no, I don't watch the soaps. I gave them up a long time ago because they're a load of drivel. Mm. But, I mean, if I'm sitting there watching Carnation Street or any of the other soaps and I have kids there watching it, should they're going to carry on grow up watching it as we did as kids watching our parents watching it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're going to go, oh, it's going to go to the pub. Yeah. You know, but... um. And it, it, it's just leaving, making them see, oh, it's, it's okay to drink. That's kind of a message they're really giving out. It's okay to drink because they're doing it on telly. I see mommy sitting down with her bottle of wine, yeah. so it's okay. Yeah. No, and like a, a lot of women are alcoholics. And, you know, they can hide it well because if, they, if they're at home, nobody knows. You know, if they don't go out, if they're having a family, if they go to a school, they can control it. They grant, pick up time for the kids, be sober. And back home and, you know, throw back to whatever they're drinking. That's an observation that was made a, a few years ago, Sandra. And I kind of pushed back against it at the time because I thought it was a bit of a generalization. But but it's this. A lot of women um, are alcoholics and don't even know it. But Exactly. Exactly. You know, and... I'm sure some like, men are too, but we're talking... Look, women, look there are a lot, you know, we look... And the men, you see the men we see men being alcoholics and it's it seems to, now I'm not saying it's okay 
But it seems that it's okay more for a man to be an alcoholic than a woman because she's the one rearing the family. Mm. You know, um, like if you said, Jesus, your woman there, she's four kids and she's an alcoholic. You say, oh my God, what about the poor kids? Mm. You know, he's out working all day and she's in there with the kids and she's drinking. You know, whereas if it was a man that's drinking, it, you know, they wouldn't get the same response. They'd say, God, he's a hidden grand man. He goes off to work there. And yeah. um, he's able to hold a job with the drink. You know what I mean? I do. I do but, indeed. I do indeed. Yeah, but the, you know, the soaps is the one you raise, and I, I, that's a good. Soaps, yeah, the, everything. Everything in the pub. Alcohol is in the soaps, and you know, it's it's glamorizing drink alcohol. You know, at the end of the day, really, okay. I suppose. All right, Sandra. Good call. Thank you for making it. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. I just, I was amazed at myself there for a second. I was able to go through all the soaps. I don't want, I honestly don't watch them. Uh, if they're on, I won't leave the room, but they're rarely on. So, Carnation Street, you have the Rovers. EastEnders, you have the Queen Vic. Emmerdale, you have the Woolpack. Fair City, you have McCoy's. And I'm sure there's others too. <laughs> God, what does that say about me? 0818969696. Come here. Does the taxman have money belonging to you? You should claim it back. Next. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96 FM. Hi, it's Elmarie. Join myself and Connor every Sunday morning to find out what's happening in the arts all over Cork. There's so much happening. Fantastic festivals with great events for all ages. And we'll tell you all about them. The Arts House. Sunday mornings, 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes. For fantastic quality and great taste guaranteed. Choose Griffin's Potatoes. Herpings and Roosters. Cork's 96 FM. You heard a lot of ads there in the last while in both Irish and English. They're in the newspapers as well and on the telly. From Revenue. Looking for us to contact them. Because they may have money belonging to us. In 2022 alone, Revenue reckons that 180 million euro was left unclaimed in tax, either in refunds or in benefits. Now, you have four years to claim back the tax from any particular year. So the tax from 2023, you have until the end of 2026 to claim it. There's a lot of money there that that they want to give back to us. Olive O'Donoghue is tax partner of KPMG. And Olive, you're encouraging people to to get on the case and, and get their money back. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. And that and that's exactly it. And um, you mentioned 180 million there in respect to 2022. And um, certainly some of the numbers that Revenue have published this week, it seems to be even uh, significantly greater than that for 2023. They're talking about 203 million already having issued in, in refunds in respect to 2023 with a further potential 480 million available to POI taxpayers. So, you know, the Revenue really are coming out with this information campaign to educate the POI taxpayer as much as possible about, you know, really how simple it is to claim back your tax, um, whether that be 
through claiming various uh, credits or or reliefs. Um, and and there's a number there's a number of different credits and reliefs out there, and it's it's really just making sure people um, are aware um, and that they know how to do it, and and really how easy it is to do. And and as you say, kind of be- better in the taxpayer pocket when it when it's your own money due back Indeed. to you. You know what what kind of things are you entitled to claim back for? I would say the most popular thing that probably has mass application would be health expenses. Um, So, you know, things like going to see your GP, your consultant, um, medical uh, prescriptions, um, you know, even things like going to a chiropractor or a physio where um, your GP has recommended that you you see those practitioners and even even certain dental um, d- dental treatment, uh, PJ, like orthodontic work or things like laser eye surgery. There's really, really a whole host, a whole host of things, you know, kind of some some things that people wouldn't think about, you know, um, celiacs and diabetics can claim in respect of, you know, certain gluten free and sugar free mm-hmm. foods. So so it's really just about kind of going on to, um, you know, revenues online um, website and kind of educating yourself about the, the various things that are available and, and making sure you claim them. Now take 2022, like if, for example, the money sitting there belonging to me or belonging to Fergal or Emer since 2022, sure, we don't have those reams of receipts lying around. So we're goosed, aren't we? Yeah. Well, look, you know, the, the, the beauty about going back and claiming um, the reliefs over the last four years, and that is crucial, right, that four-year point, because you will be time-barred. So at the minute, you can go back as far as 2020. Um, so I'd really encourage people to do that, because one, once the year passes, it's it's too late. But in terms of the receipts, it, it, it is, you know, where you're, you're claiming for the prior years, it is self-assessment, okay? So you're not required to provide any receipts or backup to revenue to, to make the claim. And to, for the most part, they don't come looking for them either, right? But but like all things with tax, you are required to keep your records. Now, certainly, you know, I, I've myself had experience of, you know, you, you can go to, you know, normally your GPs, your pharmacists, they'll, they'll be cooperative and try and help you. And you can get, you know, statements from them of, of expenses that you've incurred during the year. Sometimes you might be able to get um, records from your health insurer provider, right? Um, and, and things like that. So, you know, I would say to try and exhaust all avenues as best you can um, to, to make sure that you claim what you're entitled to. There's, there's a health insurance, for example. Can one claim back on the health insurance? Like I pay my health insurance by the month, as I'm sure many others do. Can I run that back against my tax? No, you you can't, right? So if if you are paying that yourself as your own pocket, there is kind of tax relief built in at source at that. But no, there there's nothing okay. um, available specific on that one. No. Okay, I visit I visit a chiropractor because I have a bad back. I visit a chiropractor every month, once a month. Can I claim that back? Only if you have a, a referral, really, from a GP. Or a consult or, or or a medical consultant. Not if you if you uh, go go off uh, your own back. Excuse the pun. Um, but but not yeah. Not if you choose to see the chiropractor yourself. Right. It needs to be off uh, off the recommendation of um of a um, medical uh, doctor. And would you have to show the doctor's letter? Again, it's having it on file, right? Ultimately, you're going to go into the revenue online system and you're just going to put in your claim for your 200 euro, 300 euro, whatever it might be. Um, and, and it's just important to have that letter in 
the background, you know, somewhere in your house if revenue come asking for it. Okay. But but there's no requirement to provide it to them up front. Okay, okay. That's something that people wouldn't might not have known. Now, yeah. flat rate expenses. Yeah, so flat rate expenses is kind of something that's been around for a very long time, right? And, and this is essentially um, where the revenue have published a, a, a list of allowable deductions for income tax purposes for about 180 or odd, you know, occupations. And this is essentially to give certain employees tax relief for um, the costs incurred associated with uniforms, you know, cleaning uniforms, tools and, and stationery. So the it is a prescribed list of occupations, okay. um, so it's worth having a look through. But you know, things like nurses, uh, doctors, you know, there, there's a whole list of them there that you know can essentially just have an amount deductible for tax purposes. So you know, you you can get ahead and try and get it coded onto your tax credit certificate mm. so that you get relief in real time. But that that's one that probably is a low hanging fruit that that not everyone is is claiming. Mm. People who worked from home throughout the pandemic and are now working a uh, hybrid, as it were, half their day here or at work and half their day at home or two days at home and three days in the office or whatever, their heating bills have gone up, their electricity bills have gone up. Can they claim for that? They can. So there's a remote working relief um, that anyone who has a kind of remote working arrangement, so as you outlined, you know, partly or, or full time remote, um, they can claim relief for 30 percent of their heat, electricity and broadband bills for the year. Now, it's important that it, it's relating to the days that you are working from home. So, you know, if, if when you you know start going through your calendar and, you know, half of the year, and um, you're you're working from home, right? Then you would be claiming, I suppose, thirty percent on half of your year's bills. Um, but but again, you know, it it, it with all of these things, right? It, each relief in isolation may not be a huge sum of money, yeah. but when you add them all up, you know, it it can be a real kind of sizable sum, yeah. particularly if you haven't claimed for the last four years and you're doing doing it in one yeah. lump sum. There's a thing. If you how how is it given back to you? Is it added on to this year's credits, or will they actually put money back in your account? No, they put money back in your account, um, and fairly quickly as well. Um, so you you just upload your bank details. Um, onto revenues my account and once you file the return you know it, it, it generally doesn't take that long for the money to show up in your bank account so it's quite efficient now the, the cynic in me is always worried when i hear the tax man saying ah get on to us we'll talk to you because what happens if you end up owing them money yeah, and look, there's always going to be a possibility, you know, if you look at the, the kind of stats that they've they issued earlier this week, right around the, the people that have already filed 2023 tax returns and um, about 58 percent of those were in refund positions. But there was 16 percent that did owe some money. So, you know, it, the return, the tax return is not just about going in and claiming credits. If you do have other income sources outside of your employment income, you know, you might have a small bit of rental income or maybe a bit of um, a small bit of dividend income or something like that and um, you, you do have to report that on the return as well so there there may very well be some people that that could end up owe, owing um, a, a small bit but certainly for the most part of PAYE workers you know when you're claiming these reliefs you, you will be in a refund position. Yeah. Now on prescription what can you and can't you claim back? 
And um, so again, it's it it's you know kind of all all prescription drugs, I suppose, that you're incurring the cost for, right? So you, you obviously need to be mindful of the drug payment scheme, which places a cap on a lot yeah. of the the, the the meds we might buy. And um, you know, some people ask about over the counter. Um, me- uh, medication and the answer is no so you know you're not going to be claiming for your paracetamol or your ibuprofen or whatever but yeah it kind of you know anything that's on your prescription really. Right because the drug payment scheme you know sometimes you would never come within a NASA's roar of what that that, that threshold but even if you didn't you yeah, can still exactly. claim back what you paid. Exactly exactly that's it. And do you need receipts for all that? Again, you know, the way to think about it, I would say if there's two ways of claiming here, right? You claim by doing a tax return for the prior year, in which case you do not need to provide the receipts. You you still need to have them in your back pocket if asked. But if you want to claim in real time, and by that I mean if you want your tax credit certificate updated, so in 2024 for 2024 medical expenses, then yes, you do need to upload the, the receipts as as you're incurring the costs onto revenues, my account. Okay. Um, someone on the phone says, I was put on injections for weight loss as I was borderline diabetes. They're €230 Euro a month. Can I claim that back? Yeah, to, to, you know, mo- most things that are prescribed on, you know, by by a doctor for me- medical reasons should be allowable. Okay, okay. So you'll be encouraged. Now, do you need things like public service cards to do all this? You you need a, a Ross account, don't you? You need a, a Revenue My account uh, registration. So it's quite it's quite easy, right, to go on to the, the Revenue.ie portal, um, and to register, you'll need PPS number, date of birth phone number, email address and home address. So nothing too difficult there. Um, If you want an immediate password, so if you want immediate access, you can get that by providing a driving license number um, and a recent payslip from from your employer. If you you don't want to provide those things or you don't have a driver's license, then the the, the password would come in the post. So you just have to wait a little bit. But no, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Okay, it's, if if the money's there, we should probably go looking for it. Olive O'Donoghue, tax partner of KPMG. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. There's money there, lads. Let's go and look for it. Um, the mounds of receipts you might not have, um, but if you've been spending money on medicine, or if you've been going to the doctor or the chiropractor or whatever, um, chance it. Sure, all they can do is say no. You would think, wouldn't you? The 180 million unclaimed for 2022 alone. 2023, they're giving out thousands. Has anybody, here's the thing, I'd love to talk from anyone or to anyone who's done this, who went online in the last few days or maybe last week and filled in the boxes and put in the amount of money and got their money. I'd love to talk to someone who's got their money back. 0818 96 96 96 on. Women and wine and alcohol in particular and other things. Maeve says it's not just the alcohol competition that pushes wine on women. Women often recommend a bottle of wine to other women in times of stress and trauma. Go and have a glass of wine for yourself. <laughs> Maeve, yeah, I know, I know. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Now there's uh, talk, or there has been talk, we've spoken many times about it. Sulky racing. And we're coming into springtime in a few weeks. No, it's not February, it's March. But come spring will come the earlier mornings and come the the later evenings. And that's when sulky racing will increase. But 
there is an alert going around at the moment among all the animal welfare charities that there's a sizable event likely to happen in Cork, an illegal sulky race. Plans are at an advanced stage around Cork for an illegal sulky race and animal activists, animal welfare activists are trying to get it stopped before it even starts because once one of these things starts it's impossible to stop. It's too late once they're on the road. Kelly Mellerick is with My Lovely Horse Rescue. Uh, Kelly, I've been hearing about this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, We don't know when and we don't know where but we know something is being planned. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Very good. Um, Yes, Yes, yeah, we're, we're getting tip-offs, um, you know, that there there are private groups on Facebook and other social media platforms that are organising these races, and um, we got a tip-off of one that's specific to Cork. Um, the thing about it is, is we don't know where, we don't know when, um, but the, the talk is out there that it's already in, in its stages of organisation. Now, this is one race we're talking about, but there could be multiple others underway of organising, being organised as well, you know? Yeah. They, they do it, and by the time it's on the road, it's too late. And that's why activists like yourselves are trying to, trying to pinpoint where it is so it can be stopped before it starts. Exactly. And, you know, at this stage, I think, we, as you did say there, we've spoken about this so many times. And, um, you know, I, I've seen other... Um, you know, people in animal welfare situations and and crying out for, is it going to be that a case of there has to be a death of an innocent road user in a car, bike, otherwise, before, you know, there's a massive clampdown and an investigation goes on for these these illegal races, which are also, you know, there's a lot of... um, uh, black black market betting going on here and everything and exchanges of money and the animal welfare and all of that. It needs a full investigation by Gardaí and CAB, you know. Mm-hmm. You've come across animals, young animals in particular, foals, very badly hurt from this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably be right to say um, the bigger majority of, of the horses in our care, um, my lovely horse rescue, and I probably would, you know, co co people in, in welfare and rescue would probably say the same thing. They're mostly in as a result of um, sulky racing. Um, so, you know, some, some are, you know, so badly uh, damaged mentally and physically. Um, that they, they they go on to live lives, but you know they're challenging, and it's very hard to rehome them for that reason. Mm. Um, some they don't make it at all. Um, we've we've had we've had horses that have impacted cars, and it's the poor car user. I, I we had one there a couple of years back, um, beautiful new Audi, and the horse got loose from the the person who was driving it and basically impacted over the car, smashed the whole front of the car. Um, they, they just dropped their sulky and ran off uh, yeah. down the street, out of the way. And that poor car user, now thankfully he has his life, but all the damage done to his car would have had to fall back on his own insurance, which is very, very unfair. It is. Foals that have had shoes put on them when they were way too young for shoes. I, I can even imagine yeah. how horrible that must be for a little animal, Kelly. Yeah, yeah. And as I said, you know, we've, we've had this conversation, both my co-volunteer and founder, uh, Martina Kenny, in interviews, and 
she did relate it and it's, it's worded very well to say if we took a two-year-old child, put a pair of high heels on that child and a heavy bag on their back and made them run up and down the, the street, mm. it's going to hurt their little legs, their joints. You know, they're not ready for that. And like, they're very much the same as foal, you know? Yeah, you're not supposed to put a shoes on a foal for, what, at least a year, is it? I, look, for remedial reasons, sometimes, you know, farriers will put professional shoes on for correction purposes. Just like, you know, if they've a little deformity at birth and it can be righted just through remedial care. But no, I mean, they, they, they shouldn't really have shoes on their feet till they're at least four and more. And oh. their joints are developed. You know, their soft tissues have hardened up. Their, their little, their little full feet, it's soft tissue. And inside, you know, there's a hard outer layer, like our nails, say. But every every soft tissue inside that is extremely delicate. And one ounce of damage could absolutely finish that horse's life for the rest of its life. It's so, it's so, so cruel. There is something happening in Cork, as you say, you're trying to pin down when and where. Also, you're asking people if they do know where it's on, for goodness sake, don't bet on it. Because you're adding to the industry. Well, it's all happening on site, you know, because like they're they're organising these in the early hours of the morning, five six o'clock at night. We've all seen the videos of mm. the squad cars, the guardy trying to rail get them off the road, you know. But you're talking people in their droves following this in cars and vans, and it's 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 a huge thing for the guards to try and counteract. That they really need to come out in force and be a force together to stop it on the spot before it gets out on that road. And you see, you even watch, you know, in these videos, the guards are desperately trying to corral it. But, you know, I suppose just like, you know, when the guards try to stop, you know, the the, the people up the country who had robbed something and they end up crashing and and dying, the guards are being held accountable. So the guards obviously have all that stress and worry while midstream are trying to stop this fast road race of the potential um, death or injury to another person. Yeah within the vicinity, it you know. It all falls back on them. It all falls, it back, all falls on back on them and it's not fair. It's really not fair. They, 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 they're out there trying to do their job but something else has to be done. They need more support on it, you know. Mm. I mean, we did have another video sent to us where you can hear the people videoing in the cars and vans and you can hear them speaking um, on, the, on the video and there was a relation made to one of the drivers of the sulky being off his head on drugs. You can hear it. Yeah. So, how can they be out on our public roads with an animal running with wheels out on a main road and possibly on drugs and everything else like that? Probably you and me in a car, you know, we'd be imprisoned. We'd be banned off the roads for life. It's It's 100%. It's one for the other, you know? One rule for them and one rule for the rest of us, Kelly, is what it seems like. And I know that that's that's what you're hinting at. Thank you very much, Kelly Mellerick, from my lovely horse rescue. Somewhere a sulky race is being planned. Once it's on the road, it's too damn late to stop it. So they're trying to find out when and where it might be on so maybe it can be stopped before it even starts. Kate says, you asked to hear from someone who got money back from the tax office, well, my friend got €1,500 Euro back through all small things. You'd be amazed how it adds up. It's worth having a consultant look over your affairs. Once they do, uh, you'll know what to look for. Wow. 
With regard to claiming your tax back, I got over €2,000 last week. I'm not sure of the breakdown, but I've been out of work since October. This is something we do every January. It only takes about 10 minutes. Crikey. So people are getting, getting money back all over the place. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Coach 96FM. Now, in terms of storms, we're up this week to Jocelyn. The next one, when it arrives, will be Kathleen. Back in October, Stoke November, we were hit by Babbitt. And Babbitt did wreck. Babbitt destroyed parts of East Cork with flooding, uh, particularly Middleton. Mona joins me, Mona Storm. So, Mona, the people of Middleton have now been told it could be 10 years before there's a flood measure put in place by Cork County Council. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on. Yes, it's it's really hard to believe. Um we can't wait in Middleton and East Cork for 10 years for flood defences. The destruction that was caused by Storm Babette back in October, people are still suffering the consequences from that. And the fear is that it will happen again tomorrow, next week, next month. Uh, people are constantly watching the levels of the rivers. Um, so there's a real fear it will happen again. People are still out of their homes. Businesses are still not back. There was one, I think, that came back into operation yesterday after being closed for 14 weeks. So it's 14 weeks in Storm Babette. And there are people still trying to put their lives back together. Mm. The Cork County Council and the OPW are telling us that it will take so long to build the flood defence system that it will be 8 to 10 years minimum. It will go for planning permission at Q4 2025. That's been pushed out by another quarter. Uh, We were told Q3 2025. And last week, in a parliamentary question, we were told it would be Q4 2025. So that's the end of next year before they even look for planning permission. Before it even goes for planning permission. (laughs) And then they expect that there will be a lot of issues around that. There will be a lot of objections, which would be normal. It would be standard. Um, that there will be objections and by the time they get through all that it will be minimum 8 to 10 years before we get the flood defences. And in all that time people are sitting there in their front room watching when is the water, wondering when is the water going to go back up my walls again. Absolutely. And it's it's not just a bricks and mortar issue, PJ. This is, there are serious mental health co- um, consequences around this as well for adults and children. Uh, like what happened on that day, as as you know, the water rose really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And it was the grace of God that there wasn't loss of life. If it had happened at night, for sure, there would have been. It's true. It's and true. that could happen any day. I was, um, I was off so, that week and I was listening to the coverage. Gareth and Joe were doing the show that week and I was listening to the, the news of the devastation. And I was saying that to myself. It was an absolute miracle nobody was killed. It absolutely was. And it's unconscionable now, PJ, that people are expected to wait that long. Yeah. And even the costs of putting their homes and their businesses back together, you know, unless you live through it or you know someone who has experienced it and you see what the damage that can be done, you know, I would have thought my first experience of flooding was in 2015. 
before that I would hear it on the news, you know, somewhere was flooded and you think, oh, that's terrible. And after a couple of days, it disappears from the headlines and you forget about it. When you see the damage, you know, people are having estimates to repair their homes of in excess of 100,000 and the same for the businesses. And are they getting help, the kind of help the government promised? No, not really. There are two funds there that are riddled with red tape. One is for the business uh, people and the other is for the homeowners. Uh, they're riddled with red tape. It's, it's very difficult to access. And when they do get it, in many cases, it's not sufficient. Yeah. And if you do have any level of insurance and it won't cover the repairs to your home, the government fund doesn't fill the gap. So there are many people that have to take out loans now to repair their homes and again, and their businesses, and again with the risk that this will happen any day. Yeah. Now, I suppose um, if we were talking to a, a council official, Mona, they would mm-hmm. sadly shake their head and say, lads, it's not as simple as that. These things take time. What would you say? I would say we have been waiting since 2010 for flood defences in Middleton. How much longer do we have to wait? And do we have to wait until someone dies? And I don't think I'm being dramatic, PJ, by saying that. That is the fact. Mm. So why why are they... And they still can't even confirm that it will happen. Because it's not like yesterday you asked for this. No. They have been talking about flood defences since at least 2010. And the floods have been getting worse. So, you know, it's not dramatic to say that it could happen again in a week or a month or a year and that there won't be loss of life. Well, here's and the thing. the devastation that's, sorry, yeah. Here's the thing. Aisha and Jocelyn came back to back the other night and mercifully we escaped the worst of both of them. Now, Aisha was bad enough. We escaped the worst of it and we escaped the worst of Jocelyn. If either of those had hit you with heavy rain and flooding you could have been in serious trouble again. We could. And I was getting text messages from people on Sunday morning. Do you know, do we have any warnings? Do we know, are we going to flood? Because there is no emergency warning system in place if flooding is going to happen. So people are watching the levels of the rivers themselves. And even with the warnings at the weekend, don't go out unless you have to. People are going out because they want to see if the river levels are rising. Do they need to get sandbags? Do they need to move furniture if they are in their homes? Um, it's it's a real fear. Mm. And we can't wait that long. There are a lot of interim measures, PJ, that could be put in place. Yeah. Now, I know that the County Council has done a little bit, but nowhere near what we would have wanted. Down in Ballinhasig, that little community, I can't remember the name of it now, but that little community in Ballinhasig... Um, pooled their resources, got builders out and just threw up an embankment to keep their houses safe. So sick of it were they. But they shouldn't have to do that. No. And there was an estate in Middleton where a wall was was knocked down by the flood and they tried to rebuild it, but the council approached them and said, you actually can't. You have to get planning permission. Once the flood has happened and the flood has caused damage, you have to get planning permission to put that wall in place. Oh, God almighty, Mona. Yeah, I'm shaking so my, even I'm, though I'm they tried to help themselves. You have a petition online that people ha- can sign. We have it online. We also have um, a physical petition. So uh, they are, they're exactly the same. Um, but we have been in, in uh, uh, most of the businesses in Middleton have a copy of the physical petition. 
and we were we had a table in Super Value in Middleton all last week. Okay. Um, so online we have over two thousand signatures, but the physical signatures we have over seven thousand at this stage. Okay. And okay. we will be going for this weekend, and our our aim is ten. We're going to surpass that absolutely no problem. Mona, it's a it's an election year. It's a local election year. This will be a huge election issue. It is a huge election issue. It absolutely is. Uh, it, like in the papers, it said 100 houses in Middleton. We reckon there was closer to 500 homes and businesses that were flooded wow. on the 18th of October. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's a rough calculation because you won't have all the individual standalone homes. It's yeah. too hard to, to calculate okay. those. But it's closer to 500. Hundreds and, th- and thousands of lives disrupted on that one day in October and the fear being that it could happen again. Thank you, Mona. Stay in touch with me on that one. That's a petition for flood defence or even the th- proper talk about flood defence for Middleton. Thank you, Mona. need to leave it there because I need to find out what this is. It's been driving us mad all morning. Catherine, help me here. What What is that racket? Well, I just said I think it's the central heating coming on and the pipes contracting. It's the central heating coming on, the pipes contracting and looking to come out of the ground by the sounds of it to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what it is. You are today's qualifier, so Fantastic. you'll be in the draw tomorrow for 2,000 euro. What would you do with 2,000 euro from the furniture centre if you had it? I'd just go mad. I suppose to go over there and I'd see what I could get. <laughs> <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a good thing. That'd be a good yeah. thing. All right, Catherine. Catherine Cooney, you are in the draw uh, tomorrow. We have one more place in that draw. Programme edited by Imro Hay, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. All of you podcasts up shortly. And we will talk to you tomorrow just after nine. Callahan brings you the best music mix on oldies and Irish. Every Sunday from midday on Cork's 96 FM. Welcome along to the program. Great to have your company on a Sunday. As I say, it's a privilege. Hopefully you can join me. Turn it up and take it easy with a big show on your radio. It's the perfect Sunday soundtrack. In Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Every Sunday from midday to 2 p.m. on Cork's 96 FM. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.